0: Back in episode 1, I explained that this whole series was inspired by what I saw happening to independent practices during the pandemic. Initially, we were faced with a health crisis where patients couldn't go to the doctor's office out of fear of their more immediate health safety. As we've talked about since, the pressures that were already squeezing independent practices in terms of income, reimbursement, resources, and sustainability got worse very quickly during the pandemic with the number of practices closing or selling, potentially changing healthcare access for patients in multiple geographies throughout the country. Today, I wanted to share some stories of practices who were small and agile enough to pivot and get through the worst of it. My name is Lolita Avyankar. I'm a family physician, and from health affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal, where we take a closer look at how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care practices And what that could mean for our healthcare system. Okay, let's get right into it. I am not being hyperbolic when I say that the coronavirus pandemic changed the primary care landscape as we know it. We heard a little from Dr. Wayne Strauss in the first episode, but I wanted to go into his pandemic experience a little bit more. He had switched over to a payment form called Direct Primary Care in 2019, We'll talk a little bit more about that next. But this meant that he didn't actually have insurance payments to rely on. Given the lack of income for the majority of the early days of the pandemic, he often didn't pay himself. He was able to get by because his wife was still making a good income, but he had decided that he was going to close shop if he started dipping into his retirement savings. The thing that got him through was that he was actually seeing patients in person for the majority of those early days in New York.
1: I actually did in person during COVID. I could do that for a couple of reasons. One one that drove me to do it, to be honest, was that very early in COVID, there was a Mennonite lady who ultimately, I figured out, was having an ectopic pregnancy. And she was very stoic. An
0: ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that occurs outside of the uterus, either in the fallopian tube or in the ovaries and it can be life-threatening for pregnant patients, especially if it ruptures. The Mennonite population in upstate New York is a really unique patient demographic to work with. Like the Amish, they avoid a lot of modern-day technology, so it was a different experience for Dr. Strauss to care for Mennonite patients, especially when everything was shifting to telehealth and online patient care. With this patient, Dr. Strauss wouldn't have been able to do a video visit anyway, it would have been over the telephone instead. And it wasn't until he examined her
1: and she jumped that I realized, oh my gosh, and we did the pregnancy test and found out she was. And if, if I had tried to do video medicine, let alone you know telephone, that lady may have died. She was already in the process of rupturing when we got there. She went to get an ultrasound and then went home and We got called from the radiologist. The radiologist said there's nothing in the uterus and I had to wait for an hour and a half until the horse and buggy got back to her house. That was a long hour and a half of waiting, so that really got to me and said i'm going if Person needs to be seen, I'm going to see them.
0: With the explosion of telehealth during the pandemic, it's important to remember the value of in person care in a primary care setting, especially when we talk about how physicians get paid for their services. In Dr. Strauss's case, he didn't really have to worry too much about getting reimbursement from insurance companies because of direct primary care, or DPC. The payment structure of DPC is essentially a reaction to the insurance system and is an effort to take out the middleman. Patients pay the doctors directly for their services, which also goes to cover materials, staffing, and any other related supplies. It's not for everyone. Patients who have insurance often don't want to pay extra into a monthly cost for their doctor. However, DPC isn't concierge medicine either. Usually the costs covered are the -the boots-on-the-ground costs, as opposed to extra fancy perks or 24-hour availability. I did find it interesting that DPC practices have also consolidated into larger DPC practices. However, for the most part, the small mom-and-pop type DPC practices aren't really the focus for acquisitions of larger healthcare systems. I also wanted to go back to the point that Dr. Strauss made about seeing patients in person versus via telemedicine. Many physicians kept their door open in order to see patients early in the pandemic without adequate PPE at times because telehealth reimbursement was so bad that independent doctors could lose their margins within a few days. Luckily, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and ultimately most insurers, came around to reimburse telehealth at a more sustainable level given the pandemic circumstances. This was crucial for Dr. Tina Phillip, a solo independent primary care doctor in Austin, Texas. After 13 years of being employed in another independent practice, she realized that if she wanted to practice medicine in a job that she found fulfilling, she was going to have to create it.
2: And so that's when I decided I wanted to open my own practice. Unfortunately, the timing of it all hit right when COVID started. I opened my doors the week before shelter-in-place orders went into effect in Austin. So so yeah, my timing was impeccable. But in some senses, it actually worked to my advantage to be small and new because I didn't have a huge office staff. I didn't have a big building. I didn't have like a lot of things that I had to pay for because it was really just me and I had a couple of you know office staff and we, we were able to keep it fairly small. I did fortunately plan on doing telemedicine as part of my practice anyway. So I already had the platform. So it was pretty easy to just kind of transition to that. The other unique thing was that since I was already in practice in the area, I already had patients, so I wasn't starting from zero. So I I have a little bit of a unique situation. It's not necessarily what most people who go into private practice for the first time encounter. but, But yeah, that's kind of how it got started.
0: Dr. Phillips' practice struggled initially. She did have a business loan. However, since she was a brand new practice without a tax footprint in 2019, she wasn't eligible for a PPP loan or any of the prior year's Medicare funding.
2: And it was very frustrating because it's not like I didn't see Medicare patients in 2019. I absolutely did, but it was with the other practice, so they got the money, and I did not. Ultimately, we make it work. We figured it out. It was definitely very tough, especially for the small practices, because we didn't, you know, you don't have someone out there that can, kind of fight for you to get these things or have access to like lots of resources. That first month, it was kind of like drinking out of a fire hose, right? Not only was it learning how to run a business, because I hadn't done it really before,
3: learning how to
2: deal with the virus that we didn't know anything about, how to navigate doing telemedicine almost 100%. Like, I actually need to see this person. How can I do this safely without really any PPE. So the first month or two was pretty, pretty tough. Since then, it's definitely gotten better once we were able to start seeing people in person again, once we were getting a little bit more into kind of like, oh, let's actually treat diabetes and hypertension.
0: It's not just newer practices that struggled during the pandemic. I was really excited to speak with Dr. Gail Guerrero and Dr. Kathy Romero, who are partners in a multi provider practice at Gila Valley Clinic in the rural community of Safford, Arizona. I did my family medicine rotation with them during medical school, and both of them have been so instrumental in my own decision to choose family medicine as a specialty.
3: My name is Gail Guerrero-Tucker.
0: I'm Kathy Romero. I spoke with them a little bit about how they've survived during the pandemic. Well, we
3: haven't survived it yet. We're still going. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, about how private practices have managed COVID, because I think it's different across the country. And Some haven't survived, and it's just heartbreaking to know that there are holes in our universe now that weren't there before. We were very fortunate. When COVID hit in, what, January, February, March, a friend of mine, Andrew Carroll, he posted online his COVID plan, and he said, hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but I got this from a friend, and I think that we should all get ready. You know, we should get prepared, because Arizona, we're not bad yet, but it's coming. So... I got that COVID plan of his. Oh, it was crazy
2: stuff at the time. It It was was crazy. crazy stuff. Like check temperatures at the door. What? It's Just, ridiculous.
3: Oh I can't God. come in if you have these symptoms. It was crazy. And so we're sitting no. there reading his plan going, do we don't even have the stuff to do this? How are we going to get the stuff? You know?" And then that whole PPE crisis happened. Can you even get this? I think our, our general tendency is to be pretty um, cautious rather than cavalier. So decided that we were going to adopt
0: something of this nature and pretty much came up with a policy over mm-hmm. the weekend and
3: started literally having a COVID meeting every morning before we started patients at eight o'clock we we decided on that plan and that very week somebody came in had a fever and thought they had a uti one of the nurse practitioners was like why don't we test for COVID?" and i'll be darned if there hasn't been one in our county yet we're like holy moly and so at that moment we flipped the switch we started seeing people in the car outside and then eventually we bought a COVID tent now we have a whole program, you know, you don't get in the door. If you have certain symptoms, we did that for about three, four months. And we realized, oh my gosh, our vaccines are getting behind. So then we developed a drive-through vaccine clinic where people could just drive around the back parking lot. We give them their vaccines So the kids didn't get too far behind because there's a group of us. We all have different ideas. And what ended up happening was a very fluid, adaptable model where we could with a couple days notice, adjust and readjust. And so, you know, COVID tents, drive-through vaccine clinics, drive-through visits in the parking lot, all those things have happened here now. Telemed, we didn't know anything about telemed. So, you know, we're we're doing all of this and this is all incorporated into our practice now and (coughs) what things we're going to keep or not keep is interesting.
0: The work they did to implement COVID protocols was comparable to how large hospital systems rolled out similar programs with teams of multiple talented operations people. Many independent practices communicated with each other across the country during this time, guiding and counseling each other on how to implement COVID protocols. In our next episode, we'll learn more about how Dr. Guerrero and Dr. Romero navigated their need for recruiting and expanding their group primary care practice. And we'll learn a little bit more about the government's rural health clinic program, which turned out to be exactly what they needed. I also spoke with Dr. Arun Vilivalam, who's an independent solo physician in Southern California. He's traversed the pandemic a little bit more unique, choosing to invest and innovate intentionally in order to ensure longevity and sustainability of his practice.
4: I'm solo, I've got two staff, nobody got fired. Everyone kept working full-time. I wasn't able to give them the raises that they normally would have gotten, but I didn't change anything. I kept investing in marketing, I kept investing in billing. I paid myself, I just didn't pay myself what I paid myself previous years. So it came out of my pocket, but I switched gears. You have to be willing to retool. And I really dug into other options. I actually quickly switched to telemedicine. My billing partner was really quick to keep me in the loop about when I could start billing for the insurance codes. That took about four to six weeks to happen between Medicare and other insurances. I brought that technology on. I actually invested in being able to do things online because prior to March of last year, Mostly everything was done in person. People came in, gave us, fill out the registration, all of that. I actually hired a developer and we created a, a HIPAA compliant G suite domain. And the developer worked and created the way that I can make forms. And so all of that is HIPAA compliant. I'm not paying more monthly fees to some other service for that. I set myself up to do Google Duo and FaceTime and find any way that I could to talk to my patients. I think you gotta be kind of scrappy. And I kept getting new patients last year, even though they were all video visits. And then I looked into remote patient monitoring. I talked to about 10 different vendors and almost all the vendors wanted $50 a patient or something. So I actually developed my own program and You know, full disclosure, it is my own program. But my plan with that is to actually just charge like $5 a patient. And if other physicians wanna do it, that's fine. And yes, all of those things cost money. So in addition to not bringing in as much revenue, I also invested in these things and I was able to stay afloat. And now my numbers are pretty much back to 2019 pre-pandemic numbers. I was able to survive.
0: The reason that I wanted to highlight the struggles of independent primary care practices throughout the pandemic, is because with the added burden of the pandemic and having to innovate and survive and be scrappy, independent primary care practices have really stepped up in terms of caring for the patients that they're responsible for. Dr. Vili Vellum believes that the incubators for a lot of health innovation are actually independent primary care practices that have the ability to be more agile because they have smaller operations.
4: The things I'm excited about and things that I think especially lend themselves to independent practices, is innovation. Whether it's projects that I've worked on, I've shared a couple thoughts about those, I've worked with several startups, and I think that that is an opportunity that we have as independent physicians.
0: I hope this paints a better picture of what independent primary care practices have been struggling with over the last two years, and why practices that couldn't keep up, didn't have a cushion or a plan, were likely to sell or close during that time. I know I started to get a lot of new patients coming to me at the end of 2020 because their primary care doctor of 10, 15, or sometimes 20 years had closed or had been sold to a larger system or company that no longer took their insurance. The burden of reestablishing a relationship after such reliable continuity was an added stress to many patients during an already stressful time. But consolidation and decreased viability of independent practices has been an increasing trend over the past 10 years, as we discussed in episode one. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Larry Casolino, a former independent family medicine doctor who has spent the past 20 years looking at health policy, including how consolidation has affected independent primary care. He and his group are currently looking at the impacts of private equity on consolidation, which was super interesting to me because private equity was one of those black box, behind-the-scenes things that I had no idea about. As I mentioned before, we'll also be revisiting my conversation with Dr. Guerrero and Dr. Romero from Safford, Arizona, to learn more about the Rural Health Clinic program and how it has helped them to avoid consolidation. I hope you'll join me. As always, if you found this episode interesting, please be sure to like, subscribe, comment, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. From Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you next time. Music, melody, and production by So Brown and Jack Mason.